702. The Naked Scientist. It is time for The Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris Smith. The lines are open for all of your science-related questions. Give us a call, 11 and the WhatsApp line, 72 Happy Monday, Doctor. How are you doing? Happy Monday to you too. I'm very good. And I you? hear you'll be in South Africa soon. Well, in theory, yes, it's, it's the bio Africa convention which takes place in Durban at the beginning of September traditionally it's been a bit disrupted because of COVID of course yes. but it came back for the first time last year now it should be back to full force from this year and we're just trying to finalize things so that hopefully yes we'll be running some workshops and giving some talks and presentations there the idea being that we're trying to breed the next generation of science journalists really push up the coverage of science in southern Africa including South Africa but also pan Africa so we're going to run some workshops to help people to become even better at communicating their science and all things being well fair wind behind us we may even have we should have we did it last year a scholarship available for somebody to come and join us for eight weeks of training in the naked scientists in the uk to make some science programs communicate some science and hopefully learn how to do this really really well that sounds absolutely fantastic crossing fingers that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And then we see what we can do together with yourself on 702 afternoons when you are around. Now let's jump straight into the questions. The first one comes on the WhatsApp line from RT in Pretoria. Hi, Lebo in 702. Can you please ask Dr. Chris, why do bees die when they sting? And also, do they know that they're going to die after a sting? The reason that bees die, and and I've had some familiarity with this, unfortunately, because my brother keeps bees. In fact, oh, really? at my house, I've kindly allowed him to put about a hundred thousand bees in my garden. Why would He's you allow this? Oh, I would be um, terrified. Well, because we're in a lovely place with lots of countryside and flowers and the great thing about being in the middle of nowhere with such great diversity of crops and plants and wildflowers is that you don't get a monoculture and the honey ends up taking on the flavor and the smell of the kinds of things that the bees have been making their honey from so if you offer them a pretty mundane boring banal diet of one particular plant type you'll get a honey that it can be great but it can end up a bit samey it's a bit like a whiskey that's a single malt but not quite so good and so if you give them a range of different plant choices all of the strengths of all those different plant choices can be brought to bear in the honey it tastes great and, uh, and it's, of course, because uh, I get honey, he gets knives here. But someone has to help move them around occasionally and blunder into the path of, of bees. And, yep, they do occasionally unleash a sting. The reason they die is that, unlike some stinging insects, wasps, for example, bees sting and sting once because when they sting, their stings are barbed, so they're hooked like a fishing hook. They go in, the idea being they go in and stay in, they don't go in and miss. And once they're in, the venom sac which is attached to the sting which is like a hollow hypodermic contracts muscularly and rhythmically discharging the venom down the hollow sting which is embedded in you and then into your subcutaneous tissue where it has various neuroactive effects it affects blood vessels it affects nerves and triggers a significant pain reaction and then a histamine reaction so you get swelling you get redness tenderness and then you get itchiness in the aftermath but because it's barbed when the bee discharges its sting into you, it can't get it out again. And as the bee exits the premises or you flick it off, you unfortunately pull the sting away from the back end of the bee. 
and this does catastrophic damage to the back end of the bee, so the bee is killed in the process. But bees, I think, know that they're paying a very high price for attacking you, which is why they don't do it unless provoked. Most bees are, are very, very gentle and they won't harm you unless you provoke them. So it is literally a last-ditch thing for them to do. They'll only sting you when they're alarmed or when there's a signal going around that doesn't uh, bode well. They, they get a sort of chemical signal that says, danger, attack. Other insects which don't have that same constraint, like wasps, for example, can be much more aggressive and they will just sting you. And they'll do that because they're stings are smooth they can sting deploy venom and then fly off now it does cost the wasp something because it's using up venom which costs it energy to make in the process but it is not in any way uh, harming the long-term prospects for the wasp in other respects so it can afford to be more profligate with where it dispenses its stings all right thank you so much arti for that question here's another one good day dr smith is it possible that a different form of intelligent life with technologically advanced civilizations existed long before human beings evolved on Earth, maybe millions of years ago, that were wiped out by some catastrophic event? If this is a possibility, how could it be proven? That is from Alex in Midrand. Hi, Alex. Well, of course, we don't know. And you can never say never in science or medicine because you will always eventually be wrong because there is the very edge case examples of, of things that come up. With this one, it's very hard to reconcile that something was here, something advanced, something more advanced than us, and it left no trace. Now, the Earth has resurfaced itself and rearranged itself many times, but over million-year timescales. So when those things were here, they'd have to be here a long time ago for all traces and all vestiges of themselves to be erased, and critically also, all vestiges of themselves buried in the ground, because one of the ways that we see back into the past is we ask geologists to drill holes. And geologists, by sinking a shaft down into the ground and looking at core samples, can see the layers because the earth works in layers. As you deposit more stuff on top, you bury stuff underneath and you get a, a core which has a timeline attached to it. And if we did that today, what would we see? Well, we could trace history back and we'd see at the top of it loads of plastic and oil residues and that would tell us mankind was here because look at the pollution we've made. You could see it. So it's difficult to reconcile the fact that we don't see anything like that and there's no giveaway that there were any other intelligent things here that they made the kind of indelible mark that we're making on the planet, but say they were fleetingly here, say they stopped for a while, they were very careful about cleaning up after themselves, they're like a diligent camper who goes out into the bush, and they, they make sure they take all their rubbish home with them. Perhaps if there were temporary campers here from interstellar camping trips, I suppose, maybe they were very, very careful to remove all traces to make it difficult for us to detect them because they didn't want to leave their fingerprints and footprints here to avoid affecting the evolution of our planet who knows we we just don't have any clue about that there we go alex and Madran. thank you for that question we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back i see your calls and more of your questions on the whatsapp line 702 the naked scientist 11 minutes to three o'clock and we're with dr chris smith the naked scientist we're taking your calls on 011-8830702 in the whatsapp line 0727021702 we have christine in centurion hi christine Hi there. Hello, Chris. What is the difference, please, between a ligament and a tendon? If they can attach a ligament, which has happened to my Jack Russell dog, why can they not attach a tendon to the foot of a cheetah in Peelensburg? 
Ooh, thank you, Christine. Hi, Christine. Right, well, tendons are structures that form at the ends of muscles, skeletal muscles, and they are the structures that unite all the muscle fibres and then insert them into the surface layer of the bone called the periosteum so the muscle can work across a joint in the bone which acts as the lever. A ligament is also a connective tissue structure but it's a supporting structure usually around a joint which can contribute to the integrity and the stability of that joint. So it's not conveying force necessarily from a muscle straight through uh, the uh, into the bone to move a joint but it's stabilizing a joint a good example of this your anterior cruciate ligament for example the acl the skiers ligament this is in your knees and you have they're called the cruciate or cross ligaments because you have one that goes from front to back and one that goes from back to front and they do that in opposite directions from top to bottom so you get a cross configuration which stops your knee slipping forwards and backwards it holds the joint stable so there's not a muscle acting on that connection but you're still connecting across bones and therefore stabilizing a joint it they can be repaired anything can pretty much be repaired but the outcomes can vary tendons take huge amounts of force especially if you think about the one that runs down the back of your leg and inserts into your ankle that you pull up on to stand on tiptoe enormous amounts of force are going through those tendons and if you rupture them very, very hard to get them to heal up quickly and put them right. But it is possible. Ligaments, you can have them repaired if people do mess their knees up and skiing. Classic example, as I've mentioned, when you, you twist on your skis and put huge strain on your knees and you can tear those ligaments, they can be repaired. But the outcomes are variable. Thank you so much uh, for that question that's come through. We've now got uh, Anthony in Centurion. Hi, Anthony. Uh, thank you, Lebo. Um, just a question for Dr. Priest. My fascination is with uh, human hair, particularly. Why is it that with African childhood, they, they are born usually with hair, not fit? Why the Caucasian child will be born bald, and yet the Caucasian child's hair goes on to be much longer, and the African hair gets to stand cross at a certain stage, and why is it that black hair African only finds the ability to grow longer when you make it into dreadlocks compared to when it's just left at its natural state? Mm. What causes it to grow when it's dreadlocks? Yes, and yes. Yet, if you leave it at its natural state, state nothing seems to happen to it. It just stands cross and just this massive mess on the head. Yes, and I've got got you on. Yes, we've got you on that, um, Anthony. So, um, Dr. Chris, African hair versus Caucasian hair, and I'm sure we could put in a whole lot of other cultures in the mix. Why does it seem that African hair is um, limited in terms of length, except when you dreadlock it, and Caucasian hair um, seems to just grow to any length, and, and, and the difference between the babies that, you know, come out bald versus those with full heads of hair? Babies it varies and I don't think there is a definite relationship between where you're from and whether or not you're born with hair. I've I've seen and I've delivered quite a few babies in my career as a medical student but I don't think there's any clear evidence that if you're a certain colour or skin colour persuasion that you will have hair at birth and not others. I think it varies and I've seen both, both, of, both examples. As you get older, obviously hair growth does kick in and the purpose of hair is to shield the areas that the sun would bear down on the greatest. Now the reason that African hair 
adopts that twisted, curly configuration is because that is the best way of making the hair go furthest in the most compact space to interrupt sunlight. And if you think about where uh, people came from on Earth, people originated, originally humans, advanced anatomically modern humans, originated in Africa. They then migrated away from Africa 60,000 years ago or so and populated other parts of the world. And as they did so, they went from what must have been the characteristic African hair and colour to the other skin tones and the other hair types that we see around the world. So there must be some evolutionary advantage. And that's why, given how strong the sunlight is in equatorial Africa, we think that that was probably a strong driver for evolving hair of that particular configuration. But that's its shape. It's nothing to do with the length. Hair grows to a certain length because the hair follicle, which produces the filament of keratin, which is what hair is, this goes through three phases, an anagen, a catagen, and a thelogen phase. The anagen is the growth phase. That's when the hair is getting longer. The catagen is when the hair dies and falls out, and the thelogen phase is when it rests. And different parts of your body have hair follicles that, that have different relative lengths of those phases. And the longer the anagen phase is, the longer the hair can become because it's growing for longer, so it can grow for years. And on the top of your head, a hair grows for several years. It's just that it coils up in African hair because the shape of the stem cells that make the hair, the ring of cells, is slightly different and it imparts a slightly different characteristic to the protein which makes it coil whereas you can also produce if you arrange them slightly differently and have a slightly different structure to the protein you get a straight filament long straight hair but it'll still get long because the growth phase is long if you look at an eyelash for example the growth phase of that is only measured in instead of three years it's a few weeks so the hair doesn't get very long before it goes into that catagen phase and falls out so if you want to grow long African hair, as long as you keep the hair uh, in, in, in a way that you're, you're measuring how long it is by, say, pulling it out into dreadlocks, it's going to grow just as long as someone who doesn't have curly hair. And, and then it will eventually fall out after about three years. So that limits the average, by the way. Some hairs grow for much longer. So therefore, that is, that is why you can produce very long hair, apparently, but it also looks like it's really short because it's, it's curled up. Okay, and then a quick one for you to answer, Dr. Chris. Mpo says, since sperm contains some nutrients, is it not a waste of useful nutrients to ejaculate? Well, it is, but then everything in life is basically a compromise between what you want to spend energy on and what you don't want to spend energy on. And our raison d'etre, as it were, we're only here really to reproduce. We want to, in evolutionary terms, pass on our genetic material. And that means make another baby. And so it is a small price to pay in order to keep our genes in circulation in the population. So yes, it's a cost in energy terms. And I think there's about five calories in the average ejaculate for people that are counting. Um, but it, it's, it's a small price to pay. But that is true. That, that is true. And wow. there's lots of zinc and other minerals in there as well. I calculated it because someone said to me, uh, how, how many calories can you derive from an ejaculation? And uh, basically, how does that relate to hamburgers? And I said, well, a hamburger's got about 500 calories in it. So you'd have to gulp down quite a oh, lot I of see. ejaculations if that was what you were doing. Yes. Um, but I think that's the reason that the body knows that everything costs something. And this is a small price for the potential to pass on your genes and keep them in the population into the future. Trust Dr. Christmas to actually know everything. Thank you so much.